The Athletic. This week, the Saudi Arabian Domestic League announced a big revamp. In short, more teams, bigger talent and a huge injection of cash. How will it work? Who could be joining Cristiano Ronaldo and now Karim Benzema out there? And what is the goal? Oh, and I would imagine there'd be some golf in this as well. We'll explain everything. I'm Mark Chapman. This is the Athletic Football Podcast. Huge story coming out of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, announced by Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman that a Saudi sports club investment and privatisation project will be put in place. Karim Benzema will be enjoying his evening as well because he's got a very lucrative deal that has got over the line to play his football in Saudi Arabia after 14 very successful seasons at Real Madrid. Now to a surprise move in the world of professional golf, the PGA Tour and European Tour today announced a merger with controversial Saudi-backed Live Golf. If Saudi Arabia doesn't have a World Cup within the next decade, I would be staggered. So joining us today, uh, the Athletics' Adam Crafton and Jacob Whitehead, plus Wael Jabir, who is based in Riyadh. We'll come through to, to the announcement, first of all, Jacob, but we've got two massive sports stories here, Well, So I just wonder, let's do the football first. What was the reaction to that announcement in Riyadh and in Saudi Arabia? Yeah, within Saudi Arabia, the reaction has been obviously one of huge excitement, especially uh, within fans of the clubs that uh, that are receiving the investment, uh, be it from the PIF or from the other uh, government companies that are investing in clubs. Obviously, a bit of disappointment and frustration from the side of fans of the clubs who are not part of the deal yet. Most notably, a Shabab, who are the fifth biggest club in the country and feeling a little bit hard done by not being part of the investment. But yeah, other than that, uh, lots of excitement in terms of who's next. We've got Ronaldo, we've got Benzema. Well, who's my club getting? So that's very much the sentiment in Saudi at the moment. So that's the, that's the football. And I'm guessing the golf is probably less excitement because it doesn't, it doesn't change sports men in this case. Coming, coming to play in in your country. Yeah, that's an interesting one, really, because obviously, if we're looking worldwide, it's arguably the bigger story. Yeah. But within the kingdom, there is very little interest in in golf as a sport. So a lot of people are not even aware of what's happening with with the whole golf situation. <laughs> um, Jacob, let's go through the announcement. Wales touched on on some of it. And and the fact that basically the the PIF the, this fund have have invested bought the sovereign wealth fund the country's four largest clubs. Yeah, and of course we already know the PIF because they own Newcastle United or eighty percent stake in it. And people thought, well, to an extent, that's their involvement in football sorted. They're Newcastle's owners, and then buying all four of Saudi's largest four clubs at once. So that's Al Nasser, who Ronaldo plays for. Al Halal, Al Itihad, the reigning champions, and Al Ali. And as well as that, another four clubs have all had massive injections of private investments from four different companies. Those companies are all state owned. They include Ramco, the state oil company, and Neom, who are kind of building this super city in the desert in the northwest of the country. So could kind of lead to this almost two or three tier league system, which Whale alluded to. So, so 
well, what what have we got then? We've got the four that the PIF have invested in, another four that will get investment from other companies, and then that leaves how many other teams in this league? So just to to clarify, Al Hilal and Al Nasser are the two biggest clubs in the capital Riyadh, and the other two, Al Ahli and Al Tihad, are the two biggest club in. In Jeddah, uh, the second largest city in Saudi Arabia. So in essence, what they're doing is they're taking an existing derby rivalry in the two biggest cities and taking that to the next level. The other four that have received investment are not actually in the top division. Right. So you're looking at uh, Al-Qadisiyah, who are the biggest club in the eastern region of Saudi Arabia. And that's where all the oil is. And hence why it's being invested in by Saudi Aramco, the oil company. It's not part of a huge traditional rivalry. They do have domestic rivals, but it's not a it's not a massive one. But I think the logic there is developing a big club in the oil producing region and having all that Aramco tie up. Then you have uh, Adoreya, which come from just outside of the capital Riyadh, but uh, the significance of it is Adoreya is actually an old town, and it's the birthplace of Saudi Arabia as a country. But also, it has a historical and a cultural significance as it was the birthplace of uh, Wahhabism. Wahhabism, which is obviously the the ideology behind the early the early foundation of the Saudi state. Since Mohammed bin Salman has come in, he's basically looked to transform that. He's basically moved moved it into a center of entertainment, trying to basically remove that uh, that association of it with the with the ideology that they're saying okay this no longer represents us as a nation so hence the investment in a club from that area and then obviously you have Al-Sukur who um, who have received the Neom investment and they are the club geographically closest to to the new development of Neom which is a city that today doesn't exist but that's the club that is geographically closest to it it's some yeah, 150 miles away from from Neom Adam, with your European football contacts, what, what are the noises across Europe at, at what is happening here? I think initially it was this kind of, will they really do it? Are they really serious kind of sense? You know, obviously we knew they'd done Ronaldo, but, you know, there were these stories about there's going to be more to come. There's going to be, they're going to try and get Messi. They'll get Benzema. They'll go for Kante. And what you're basically seeing is they are really going to do it. And at the moment, you know, I think from from an agent's perspective, it's an absolute dream because if you are if you have a client in a European club, you can basically say we have interest from Saudi Arabia because Saudi Arabia is interested in basically every famous player over the age of thirty. That appears to be the target market at the moment. They want big names. They want a splash. Um, they want people that you know you're going to turn your heads to. Uh, and I think that's what that's where it is at the moment. And I think that the aim is to get probably 20 to 25 players over the next 12 months or so into Saudi Arabia. And, and you know, having seen what we've seen at Newcastle, whether we're looking at the golf or we're looking at boxing, when Saudi Arabia decides it wants to do something, it does it and it generally gets its way. So I think that's that's what we're going to see. Jacob, how good at the moment, how good is this league? Not great as an entire league. So there's some there's some stats done by Sports Intelligence Agency 21st Group, and that rates the Saudi Pro League as the 58th highest quality league in the world. I guess some caveats and matters that it's taking kind of the average strength of a team in the league. The top teams in the Saudi League kind of do have a relatively large advantage over those at the bottom. But um, just for context, that kind of puts it 
around the level of kind of a Scottish Premiership and Serie C in, in, in Italy. And they've said that they want the goal of reaching the top 10, which is quite a dramatic jump. What, what, what I would say, though, Jacob, and this was in Chappers, you're, you're obviously there in Qatar as well in December. While the quality of the league may not be that high, the, the level of support and interest yeah. in football in Saudi Arabia is huge, right? And the rivalry between Al Nasser, Al Hilal is a proper rivalry, right? They they hate they hate each yeah. other in the same way as, you know, we could talk about Celtic and Rangers or or any or any kind of equivalents. That, that's a serious rivalry. There's a proper football base there. Um, and their international team had a good World Cup as well. Really good, really good there. World really good World Cup. The best I would say one of the best days of the World Cup in Qatar atmosphere wise was the day they beat Argentina and you yeah. had thousands of fans driving over the border and also a huge interest in, I suppose, what we would call like supporting players. You know, there is huge kind of Ronaldo fandom, Messi fandom, Benzema fandom, huge Real Madrid, Barcelona interest as well. So I, I think this is different. So, so, for example, if like the Qatar League was doing this, you, you'd be a bit more like, well, who's actually going to go and watch this stuff? Whereas with Saudi, there is a genuine fanaticism around football as well. So, so I mean, okay, you said Qatar doing this, but is this different to China trying to do this? Well, a decade ago, do, do you think? Or, or are there similarities? I mean, there's nothing new in countries trying to take their domestic game to a new level or new audiences by bringing in the slightly older European footballer. I mean, America tried it in the 70s with mm. Beckenbauer and Best and, and Pele, and China tried it in the sort of 2010s here. So is there anything different? Do you think, Adam, first? We'll go around everybody, but you go first, Adam. I don't think the aspiration is so different. You know, the Chinese investments are obviously hugely linked to the state as well. There was this, I think everyone, we talk about Vision 2030 with Saudi Arabia, which is essentially this diversification of the economy plan by Mohammed bin Salman. It taps in as well to what Wael said around, uh, I suppose, entertainment opening up. And 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 we'll probably talk more about, about that later in terms of, I suppose, the counter arguments with that. But I, th- I think the, the Chinese had this ambition around 2050, you know, in terms of making the, their, their, their football... Uh, their football league competitive and having a national team and they th- there was also this view it was all going to lead up to a World Cup bid for China that's not materialised that's partly because the Chinese state decided it had other priorities Covid also played a part in that as well we know that the Saudi Arabia like if Saudi Arabia doesn't have a World Cup within the next decade I would be staggered right it's either going to be 2030 or 2034 as far as I can tell and I think that's a huge part of it as well in terms of making sure that it is a relevant market within football by that point. So is it profoundly different as a strategy? I'm not sure. Will it be more effective? Possibly, because we, we keep seeing Saudi Arabia be very, very effective from a sporting strategy point of view. Um, the other thing I'd say is that China never got a Ronaldo, a Messi Benzema level player that the level was below that they were good players but they weren't we can't ignore you players and that and that is the reality of what you know I know Messi's not there yet he may not go there but if you have Ronaldo at Al Nasser Messi at Al Hilal then you know you, you've kind of smashed the market Jacob 
Yeah, I agree with Adam in that I think it's ultimately a question of scale rather than kind of any different kind of aim. With By getting a Messi, a Ronaldo, a Benzema, you do tap into that supporting a player rather than a team. And I, I don't also think that that's so unusual. Like it can be, sort of has been looked down on a bit by some people kind of in in Europe. If you kind of look at the NBA or something, there's very similar levels of fandom there. And just by doing that, you get eyes on it. It'll be really interesting to see how they kind of pursue, say, the broadcasting rights for it or get pundits and... Uh, all of those kind of little side bits will kind of lead into this whole battle, which you probably didn't get in, in China. Well, I very much agree, I agree with uh, both Jacob and Adam in, in the sense that the strategy is not something new. The approach is not something new. It is something that uh, has been done by China. It actually has been done by Qatar even 20, 20 years ago. And the fact that, you know, we don't even talk about that now uh, shows you that it can go very wrong, you know. But I think, yeah, the differences here are things like, uh, again, like Adam has mentioned, the passion for football in Saudi Arabia is on a whole different level. That's one thing that wasn't uh, that wasn't available in China when they when they did this. Uh, the other thing is being connected to the rest of the world. Obviously, in China, let's look at it from a social media perspective. The clubs have come in, they've brought in all these superstars, but they don't even have presence on mainstream social media. So they're not part of that. In Saudi Arabia, it's completely different from that sense. You look at a club like Al-Hilal, who is already before this starts, is one of the top 10 most followed clubs on Twitter in the whole world. So there is a significant to it. And then this ties up with other things as well. Saudi Arabia is obviously, again, as mentioned, uh, Vision 2030. They're, They're trying to attract tourism. They're trying to do all sorts of other things that tie in with this. And that's what gives us maybe uh, a more likelihood of it being successful. Uh, I do wonder also about the same question by 2030, if things don't go to plan, if they don't have a World Cup or maybe an Olympics, do they continue down that road or do they basically do what China did and say, yeah, you know what, we have other priorities? Well, can I ask you Can I ask you something? I've got some really good friends in Saudi Arabia who are incredibly excited about what's what's happening from a sports point of view. One of the things that they criticise, and I know that people listening will think there's far bigger things to talk about. One of the things they talk about is the, is the need to build better stadiums in Saudi Arabia. Are, are any plans for that underway? Because at the moment, that infrastructure is is not what you would expect of if you are a Ronaldo, Benzema kind of level player. Yeah, I fully agree. And even Ronaldo himself, he did an interview with the league uh, last week and he actually mentioned infrastructure. So when you have your biggest star coming in on the official channels on an interview and saying, yeah, if there's one thing I would develop is infrastructure, that is an issue. But yes, uh, there are plans in place for that. Actually, Saudi Arabia has uh, bid to host the 2027 Asian Cup and that'd be the first time for them to host it, which is obviously a big deal for Saudi. And as part of that, there will be redevelopment of a lot of the existing stadiums and building new stadiums. And the approach has actually been the same. Aramco have uh, have taken ownership of uh, developing the biggest stadium in the eastern region where they're based. Al-Shabaab, the fifth uh, club in Saudi Arabia, have actually just about completed their new stadiums in which they will play uh, next season. There is definitely a plan in place for that. They're also bidding to host the 2026 Women's Asian Cup. So again, part of that, there is also an infrastructure development drive. 
Football questions are valid, Adam. In this, mm. I mean, it is because of because course. trying to yeah, absolutely. Before we get on to the other stuff, because trying to understand how it works football wise is 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 important. And and I do wonder as well. Well, whether do they? How will this affect their own players? Who you know, if there is an influx of European talent, and is there a wish for Saudi talent? to go the other way and 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 broaden their footballing experiences? Or is this very much, no, Saudi footballing talent stays in Saudi and it will be enhanced by Benzema, Ronaldo, etc.? Yeah, that's one area of uh, development of football, which I would say in the past 10 years, they have not been a clear direction. Uh, they did experiment ahead of the 2018 World Cup uh, when they had just returned to the World Cup for the first time in 12 years. They sent a few of their players to La Liga, but those were players who were 28, 29, and they didn't get much playing time, uh, even at the smaller clubs at La Liga. So that experience has definitely failed. Uh, then they established this scholarship program where they said, okay, it doesn't work with older players, but now they started sending a bunch of 16, 17 year olds to, to train in Spain again as part of a, an agreement with the La Liga and the Spanish Federation. They've done that. Where does that go from there? Let's see. Uh, I think we're still a little bit far away from one of those players breaking through into, into a top division club in Spain. When it comes to the players who are actively in the Saudi league at the moment, I think it will definitely impact their chances. And this has been a trend in the past few years, regardless of the big names, because what has been happening is 10 years ago, uh, the quota for foreign players was three players per team. That went up to four, then up to six, seven, and next season is going to be eight. So when you have every team in the, in the league fielding eight foreign players, that leaves not much for the for the local players. And what we have seen is uh, even national team players. You look at the the team that's played at the World Cup. Their their main striker was a sub for his for Al Hilal. Uh, their goalkeeper was actually the second goalkeeper at Al Hilal. A lot of their players were substitutes in in the league, and they didn't get much playing time. And I think that's a trend that's gonna continue. Probably the one thing that we will also see is some of the talents preferring to go and play at mid-table clubs, bottom half clubs, uh, when they see they don't have the opportunity to compete at those top four to top five clubs. Multi-club ownership groups is nothing new, Jacob. So where did, where did Newcastle fit in, in in all of this? It's an interesting one. I think people at Newcastle were um, equally surprised as, as a lot of people to uh, find out about this. They better not have been surprised about the golf because the chairman of Newcastle is the new chair of the golf. So if they were if they were surprised about the football, at least they knew the golf was coming. But yeah, well, there, there might be a few uh, PGA Tour events in the centre of Newcastle coming soon. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's an interesting one because often we've seen multi-club ownership when teams use a European partner club because then you can use that to help with work permit points or to get used to a certain style of play. This won't work in that way, but the example of Manchester City shows how you can have this really international collective almost from more of a brand and commercial opportunity there. I mean, I I personally can't really see kind of Newcastle sending their 17-year-olds out to Al-Halau on loan, partly because, I mean, of course, like Wales just said, how eight is a big number, but across the context of a whole squad, that still isn't actually that many for 
an entire squad. Like if you compare it to the Premier League and would say that the Premier League was only to have eight spaces for foreign players, every every team would kind of have to slash their, their squad. So there are kind of a few different competing compilations going on. And also, if you have if you have multi-club ownership and, and different groups with stakes in different teams, well, they, t- they tend to be in different parts of the, well, either the continent or the, or the world. You, you don't tend to have the same fund owning four teams. Now, that, that will, I think, be an issue to those outside of Saudi Arabia when they look at this league. I wonder what, of what concern it will be to those inside because you want fair competition. And, and I'm not saying it's not going to be fair, but people can easily cast dispersions with the ownership model that is being suggested here. Yeah, it's interesting how this has been looked at from both the perspectives of uh, the outside world and within Saudi Arabia. And those have actually been two completely different perspectives because I've seen this being referred to as nationalization of uh, of Saudi clubs, where in fact, the official name of the, of the project is privatization of the clubs. And the reason is within the Saudi context in the past, all clubs have been owned directly by the states. So there was never private ownership of football clubs in the country. So when you're moving from that into clubs being owned by funds or different companies, even though they are state-owned companies, then that's definitely seen more as a move towards privatization. How it uh, works out in in practice, as you said, with four clubs in the same league being owned by the same company, that's definitely, there's no precedence there anywhere in the world. So I'm not really sure. Could go either way. And they are claiming, Jacob, that, that they will comply with all FIFA regulations. Yeah, well, I mean, they, they, I, I guess they can't go out publicly and say we aren't going to. I do think it's quite interesting just what why I was saying there, because while it is kind of publicly a privatisation, this kind of sharing of interests does point to, it's almost like a privatisation in name, but, but a nationalisation in spirit by the fact you've now got these shared interests. The only other examples I can think of kind of franchises all owned by the same owner is something like uh, the 100 in cricket or and this is kind of an IPLification of football that's quite a clumsy word but it's kind of the best comparison I have to to describe what's been to describe what's been happening with the with the star players the franchising of kind of a of a national sport there you go chappers you've inspired the Saudi Pro League with, with your with your hundred by by being part of the Manchester Originals. That's 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 where they looked. Um, <laughs> goodness me! Why are they doing this? Well, it, it internally or externally. I mean, I know we've talked about the World Cup and and them wanting that or in an Olympics, but but it has to be more than it has to be more than that. I mean. What, what's going on? It's a bit of both, uh, internally and externally. And I think it's always with these kind of projects happening in Saudis. Uh, your reference is always going back to Vision 2030, which uh, was announced in 2015, uh, started being actually put in place by 2016. And obviously now we're almost halfway there. Uh, a big part of it is diversification of the economy, but also Vision 2030 is not only about the economy, it's also about transformation of society. And that's why things like sports, like entertainment, domestically help you move towards that. Uh, Obviously, this is a country with a history of being 
arguably the most conservative on the whole planet for a very long time and its entire foundation was based on a conservative identity so for a new de facto ruler not even a king yet to come in and within five years uh, say okay we're gonna throw all that out, out the window and try to develop a new identity for who we are as a nation obviously that takes takes projects of this magnitude spending of this magnitude to try to do it but is that and look, I don't, I don't want to get you into trouble here. So, so, but is that look? We've got sport, we've got entertainment. The, here is the perception of a more liberal culture. But we've given you this, so don't actually question that we're still incredibly conservative. Not necessarily, uh, because we have seen genuine moves towards moving from that uh, conservative heritage with so many things. Uh, be it in terms of uh, you know women being able to drive, women being able to to go to stadiums, people, uh, women's participation in the workforce. Uh, I personally work in an office of six people, two of whom are Saudi women, and this is something that's unheard of even ten years ago. Personally, I'm I'm someone who's who was born and raised in this country. I've seen how it was like twenty years ago. I remember very much as a ten year old being chased by the religious police when it's prayer time while we're playing football in the neighborhood. The religious police doesn't exist anymore. So a lot of these things, you know, are genuine changes and they are changes to a large extent that are that have been met with a, quite a positive response. The, the most recent population census in Saudi Arabia puts 65% of the population is under 30. And obviously that's not a generation who wants to adhere to traditional values. That's not a a population that wants to live the same way that uh, you know their parents or grandparents lived lived 30 40 years ago so these movements are quite popular with the population whether obviously yeah a lot of things still remain obviously you cannot say that you know Saudi Arabia has now just become yeah as liberal as anywhere in Europe or in the west or or, or not even dubai yet right however uh, the fact that all these changes have happened over the past seven years. I think there is something to be said about that. And it brings us back, doesn't it, Adam, to the age-old debate, which we have been having for a very long time, not just about Saudi Arabia, but of other countries as well, whether we're looking at sport washing, whether we're trying to ignore human rights records, or whether actually this is the start of, 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 of progress and, and a change. So it brings it back to again. Yeah, and it's also, you know, if you were to go back to, as well says, 2015, 2016, I mean, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, the chair of the chair of the board of PIF, became almost like the darling of, of Western governments in a lot of ways, because he was talking about all of this, this stuff, moving away from the uh, Wahhabist ideology, make, moving away from the religious police, letting women drive i mean the bar was so low right we're talking about women driving yeah. as uh, it seems surreal for us on this conversation but when you've grown up as yl has in that environment where women weren't in workplaces and weren't being able to drive and you know you couldn't listen to loud music outside and things like that then that is that is radical in itself that was then all under it was not all undermined it was greatly undermined by the fact that there were people within the kingdom, I think certainly uh, women within the kingdom, who thought some of these changes weren't happening quickly enough. And there was then a clampdown on those who would dare to speak out against that. 
most famously, most infamously, you have the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi, which the CIA released a report saying that MBS approved the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi, which MBS rejects as, as the findings. But that was a stain on the reputation of Saudi that essentially made it a pariah state to, you'd certainly say to the United States, Canada, I'd say Britain less so, just because of the reality of how Britain works. Um, but but that, that, that became a major issue. You still have issues around executions and uh, and the rights of, of women and LGBT people and all of these kind of things. So it all goes into the melting pot together. But the reality is that every sector, whether you talk about Silicon Valley, tech, uh, healthcare, sport, all of these industries are being invested in by Saudi funds. And it comes back to that age-old question of, do we consider sport in in some way more do we consider sport more precious in some way that it shouldn't be, you know, I suppose infiltrated in this way by states that 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 have received criticism? Or actually is it just business? Is it just a sector? And Saudi has a right to make itself to to, to invest in, in that sector in the same way as it would every other sector. And those are the things that will be relentlessly debated and you can then have discussions around competitive balance and uh, wh- whether, you know, how can you compete with state ownership and all of that kind of stuff. But that's what it all comes down to. It's the pace of change. Are we, is it satisfactory for, for those in the West? All of those kind of discussions. I suppose it's interesting because even in kind of a choice of clubs, which are getting investment, there's an element of politics and appeasement to it in the sense that one thing MBS is terrified of is having kind of a repeat of, an Arab Spring. And so one of the ways he's been trying to do that is to kind of appease the Wahhabists, to appease the provinces, all of those different elements. And here you see the clubs who are receiving investment, uh, one in the oil sector in region. You've got the Wahhabist base. You've even then got a nod to kind of a technological advance in Neom. Kind of there's a very deliberate kind of choice to these investments, which are happening as part of this wider strategy, not just for how Saudi Arabia is being viewed by the wider world, but how Saudis are viewing what the new Saudi Arabia is going to be like. Well, how much, how much do the young Saudis that we talked about who are, who are growing up with more liberal attitudes, how much are they aware of the external debate around their country? They're very aware. And, but to be honest, uh, obviously you can't, uh, you can't cast everyone with the same. You, know, you cannot say that no. everyone feels the same way about a certain issue or another. And there are definitely a variety of opinions. But I think for me, you go on the streets of Saudi Arabia, talk to practically any woman, especially any woman under the age of 40, maybe. And they will they will honestly tell you that, you know, MBS is the best thing since sliced bread. Obviously, you know, when, when you've lived your whole life not being allowed to participate in the workforce, a lot of these women who have actually, they went to universities they've studied within obviously women's only schools and universities but they could not put their education to any use within the country when obviously they couldn't drive they couldn't travel abroad without uh, without the guardian's permissions a lot of these things you know which are an essential part of your life and when you think there are at least i don't know what's the exact figure but maybe close to 10 million women who have been impacted by that uh, that change it's very very difficult to try to have them think about anything other than how their lives have been 
transformed completely by that one person coming in and making decisions that no monarch before him has come in and and, and made. And th- and this is kind of the great conflict of this whole thing in that there is there is this story to tell in Saudi Arabia about diversification of the economy, about opening up, about a semblance of liberalisation and opportunity that wasn't afforded previously, but that all runs along, alongside the criticism that, that, that we've discussed. And I think, I think one of the things that jars is those who are benefiting from the Saudi cash investments, whether that is, uh, well, now it will be you know the, the, the golfers or whether it is people in Newcastle, it's as though at times we're, we're expected to be celebrating all of the positives without actually any real accountability on the negatives. So that's those are the points that, you know, the 9-11 families have been making in the past 24 hours with regards to, you know, what accountability has there been with regards to Saudi links to 9-11. Th- those, are the, those, are the, those are the issues. It's like we wanted to celebrate everything that's going well. And there is there are things to celebrate, but at the same time, it's a bit like, oh, you're just being negative if you bring up any of the other stuff. And I think at some point, you would hope, I don't, I don't actually expect this to happen, that those questions actually get some sort of answers and scrutiny and accountability. Uh, we will end it there. Uh, Adam, Jacob, well, thank you very much uh, for being with us on this one. There is plenty more on this story and on the golf on The Athletic, and we'll have more tomorrow. Bye-bye. The Athletic. <laughs>